smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken in many ways, but now he's spoken by his Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today, Matt Waldron continues our series on Bible reading tools. Matt speaks to us from Genesis 1 on what the Bible says about creation. Here's Matt. The last few weeks we've been summarising the teaching of the Bible. We started with the Gospel, what Jesus has done for us, who Jesus is. Then we looked at Revelation, then God. Now we're up to creation. And then we'll go on with sin, the last things, salvation and church. The Bible teaches clearly about creation that God created all things. And specifically, God created all things from nothing under his sovereign rule for his glory. So I'm going to draw that with some arrows. God created all things from nothing under his sovereign rule for his glory. The Bible puts this concisely in Romans 11, verses 35 to 36. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But let me also just point out uh, very briefly how some of these things are shown in Genesis 1. So firstly, Genesis 1, verse 1, starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a bit of a debate about exactly what this verse means. It's possible it's talking about God creating all the stuff as the first step. I think it's more likely that it's summarizing the whole process. But either way, it's saying that God himself simply created everything else. The heavens and the earth means everything. Uh, And so God didn't create everything out of something else. He didn't create things out of some part of himself. There wasn't something else that existed eternally alongside God that he used. He himself, the only thing that existed eternally in the past, God just created everything else. God also created things under his rule. One of the ways we see this portrayed in Genesis 1 is the way God creates the light first and then creates, for example, the sun, the moon and the stars to kind of rule the light uh, for him. So it's very clear that uh, the light is under God's rule. And the fact that he has these uh, intermediate secondary causes to make them happen doesn't take away from the fact that God is the one in charge. God is the one controlling these things. And thirdly, we see that God makes everything for his glory. As God creates everything, he says that it's good. And at the end, he says the whole lot is very good. And then he rested on the seventh day. Now, uh, this sets up a pattern for people to imitate of working for six days and then resting for one. Uh, 
so that we have a you know balance between work and rest. Uh, but unlike us, God didn't need to recover from his work. Uh, God rested to enjoy what he'd made. He made everything, he evaluated it as good, and then he stops and enjoys it. In other words, uh, God created for his enjoyment, for his glory. The Bible says that God created all things. However, the Bible also says some very specific things about God creating humanity. God created humanity in his image to have responsibility to share his rule and to do that forever. So I've drawn my little stick finger man, figure man and uh, got an extended arrow from nothing to in his image, extended the arrow under his rule to be responsibility and got an arrow going into for his glory that says forever. Uh, we see this uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So, God created humanity in his image. And he did that so that we can have responsibility to share God's rule over the rest of his creation. What about the idea of God creating people for his glory forever? The idea that we're supposed to be created in his image to share his rule for, of, of the world forever. Well, we see this in Genesis 2. I'm going to read verses 8 to 9 and verses 15 to 17. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So this clearly tells of God making a good place for Adam to live and creating the opportunities for him to eat from the tree of life and for him to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God clearly commands Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which leads to his death. The plan is for him to eat from the fruit of the other trees, including the tree of life. So God's design in creation is for humanity to live forever in his image, having responsibility to share his rule over God's creation for his glory. So there's my summary of the Bible's teaching on creation. There's a fairly obvious set of issues that I haven't covered in here. Uh, that is the whole issue around how we interpret the days of creation, the age of the earth, uh, whether that means evolution can or can't be part of the process that God used to create the world. Uh, I'm not going to go into any of those details in detail today. I'm not going to go into that issue in detail today. I just want to point out one thing, which is that this is not a special issue. This is an example of a broad
broader issue is how we think about the relationship between our objective observations of the world and our subjective experience of being human. So when we use our objective observations of the world, uh, one of the things we do is science, and we come up with all sorts of ideas uh, from doing that. And when we use our subjective experience of being human, uh, we come up with ideas about right and wrong and beauty and choice and what it means to be human and all those kinds of things. And both of these things happen in the same world. So the question is, how do they relate to each other? Uh, in our world today, in our society today, there's a growing chasm between, for example, the sciences and the humanities. Uh, and I think if you ask the average person on the street, hey, you know how you objectively observe the world and you have subjectively experienced what it is to be human. How do you relate those two things together? I think most people's answer is they've never thought about it. And the people who have thought about it generally going to struggle to give you an answer. So the idea of how do we think about the meaning of the existence of, re of the world, creation, and how do we relate that to our objective observations uh, of the world we live in? Uh, this is simply one example of a much bigger problem that our society struggles with. So I actually want to briefly readdress that bigger issue. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, this diagram hopefully looks familiar. This is my summary of the Bible's teaching on Revelation. The only reason we can know anything is because God reveals himself. He's revealed himself in all sorts of ways, but finally he's revealed himself in Jesus. And so all those things are recorded for us in an inspired way in the Bible. And so the Bible has authority, sufficiency, and clarity. But the Bible comes to us in the context of God's general revelation. Just the fact that God has created the world and created people in his image reveals much of God and his ways. And so we receive the authority of the Bible in the context of general revelation testifying to the fact it's true. The sufficiency of the Bible, it, it's, it's sufficient, but it's sufficient for us to then go and apply it and figure out how to apply it in the context of general revelation. And although the Bible's clear, we also still need to interpret it. So I want to suggest this gives us the right framework for thinking about our objective observations of the world and our subjective experience of being human. The Bible authoritatively tells us the fundamentals we need to know about God creating the world from nothing under his sovereign rule for his glory. And it also tells us the fundamentals, what we need to know about human beings. We're created in his image with responsibility for sharing his rule forever. And so these things we can see in our objective observation of the world and we can uh, understand in our experience of being human, we can see evidences of the Bible being correct. Similarly, the Bible is sufficient in telling us how to live. But there are lots of practical questions the Bible doesn't answer that we need to apply the Bible's teaching in. And so as we 
observe the world and we experience being human, that's the context in which we interpret what the Bible says and we uh, go and apply it. But what does that mean for the relationship? Well, the relationship in a nutshell is what we've been seeing in creation. God created all things from nothing under his sovereign rule for his glory. And so that's something that the objective world that we observe shares with us. Everything was created from nothing. Everything that exists, exists under God's sovereign rule. And everything that exists, including us, has the ultimate purpose of being for God's glory. But we human beings are distinct from the rest of God's creation. We're created in God's image to reflect what he's like in a more direct way. We're created with responsibility to share his rule. And we're designed to live forever. So that gives us the big framework for relating what we observe objectively with what we experience subjectively. Let me just point out how that works in relation to understanding uh, creation and what science says about origins. Firstly, uh, the Bible is authoritative in telling us that God created all things. And so whatever it says about that, we want to understand and believe. What the Bible says about creation is sufficient for us to be able to go and apply it. It's clear enough, but we still need to interpret it. So one of the obvious questions is, uh, what does the Bible mean when it describes God creating the world in six days? One obvious option is that God literally created the world in six days. However, for thousands of years, people have been suggesting that that's not what Moses meant when he wrote it thousands of years ago. Uh, one particular example it, I've already mentioned, uh, Genesis 1 describes God creating light first and then creating the sun, moon and the stars as sources of the light afterwards. It seems to me that from the modern perspective of science, there's no problem with God doing that because we now know what light is. But the question is, what did Moses and his first readers take it to mean? Because that was in the first place who God was communicating this to. So that's a good question. We need to respectfully interpret the Bible. If I would really like the Bible to tell me that the world was not created in six literal days, well, I need to try and understand what it actually says, not just try and interpret to mean what I wish it said, because the Bible has authority. If I would really like the Bible to say that God created the world in six literal days, well, you still need to understand what it actually says, because it's authoritative. And even if you'd like it to say the world was created in six literal days, well, whatever it actually does say is sufficient. So we need to find out what that is. So that's from the point of view of interpreting the Bible. What about from the point of view of interpreting science? Well, there's a very common kind of uh, way of talking about science as if science doesn't need interpreting. Uh, so lots of people talk about science as, well, whatever the mainstream scientific consensus is, that's the truth, and we just need to believe that. The obvious problem with that is 
the mainstream scientific consensus changes over time. And so it's possible for the mainstream scientific consensus to be wrong. So we still need to interpret the evidence. Of course, a more careful explanation will be that even though we can't be 100% sure the scientific consensus is true, it's the best information we have, so we should act as if it's true. In other words, it is authoritative. The big problem with this is that science can't tell us about some kinds of things. Science can't tell us what the nature of right and wrong are. These are things that we perceive through our experience of being human. Of course, people will say, ah, science can show us uh, which things cause harm and which things make people happy. And that's how you figure out what right and wrong are. But the reason we know causing harm is wrong and the reason we perceive causing happiness to be good is because these are things we assume in our experience of being human. Science can't actually test those assumptions. And so science can't have the kind of ultimate authority that uh, some people claim that it has. And so uh, we need to look at the evidence, uh, draw the best conclusions we can, uh, particularly be careful about uh, what kind of philosophical conclusions people want to draw on the basis of scientific evidence that is done carelessly all the time. And then, as we've got this information from our objective observation, we've got to relate it to our subjective experience of being human. And as we do both these things, we do both of them under God's authoritative, sufficient and clear revelation. What I want to finish with is just pointing out what I think are the three big implications of what the Bible says about creation. So the first one is about people being created in the image of God. Uh, you might have noticed that when that's described, God creates people in his image and he creates them male and female in his image. In other words, humanity is designed to be characterised by unity in diversity. It appears to me that for all our talk as a society about equality, what we mostly mean by that is equality in freedom. Everyone has the same rights to do whatever they like as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. And that's certainly a step in the right direction. But unity in diversity should mean that others being different from me is something that is valuable to me. Secondly, God creates human beings with responsibility under his sovereignty to share his rule. God runs the universe consistently. And that includes God running us. And God runs things so consistently that science serves us very well. But God runs things that way designed for us to be responsible. We still make real decisions that have real significance. And so how we honour God and ourselves and each other and the planet really matters. Thirdly, God's design is for people to live forever. To be frank, we all die. So actually, none of us do all this as well as we'd like to think we do. In the end, we all need Jesus. I hope to see you all soon. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you created all things. Thank you that you created all things for your glory. And so we know the purpose of all things. 
Father, thank you for the incredible privilege that you created us to actually work with you in enjoying and ruling the world for your glory. Father, please help us to grow in doing that in Jesus. Amen.